0: To see you.
1: today, I'm here with Scott Ryan to discuss Laura Palmer through the lens mostly through the missing pieces. But before we get into that, I'll hand over the mic so he can introduce himself further.
0: Hello, everyone. I am Scott Ryan, and uh, I'm a Twin Peaks fan. I just need to come clean about that. Just like when you go to meetings, you stand up and say your name. And I love Twin Peaks. Uh, I'm the managing editor of the Blue Rose magazine, the author of Fire Walk With Me, Your Laura Disappeared, uh, the co-president of fmp which we do all kinds of twin peaks books including laura's ghost and conversations with mark frost and then i have an upcoming lost highway book that'll be coming out in the spring of 2023 and i'm excited to cream some corn with you
1: well i guess on that note uh we could start off with the first scene that introduces laura which is the convenience store and the thing is that the more i see the scene the more i realize how deceptively important it is to laura because we do have everything about the convenience store with like Bob, the man from another place, the woodsman. But the fact that it ends with like the superimposed Laura, like right before she's under the fan. Did you have any particular takeaways of what you thought of like how Laura relates to all this and what it sets the tone for the missing pieces or Firewalk with me?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I was curious if you were going to bring that up because I feel like, It would be easy to skip that scene as a Laura scene in The Missing Pieces. But while most of The Missing Pieces, I think fans kind of knew about from the script, that is a really interesting one because why are we seeing Laura there? I mean, that's a very interesting thing because when does that really happen? Because in the movie, you really see that from Cooper's point of view, and we're not so interested in where Laura Palmer is at that time. I'm curious if Lynch added that now. I mean, had it come out in 92, would Laura's face be superimposed there? I mean it's i don't know that we'd know the answer to that question but it's an interesting thing to think about
1: i can't confirm or deny it but uh i do think of how at the end of the movie uh right before the angel scene i think of how it shows her watch up on the beach like you know in the pilot as she's being unraveled and shows the black lodge like basically zooming in and the thing is that with this scene with the convenience store it's actually with her under the fan but zooming out so you know i i as much as i love the intro of the one year later we get in the movie I think there's something more thematical about seeing like the black lodge superimposed with laura just like you know bookending the movie for lack of a better term just because i feel like there's some deliberate about like where she stands with the black lodge or the entities of what they see in her because you know uh, it's uh they're they're just about that convenience store scene the way that with bob and the man from another place the way they come across the black lodge and uh just a lot of like how at least what i get from it because the thing is that it's really hard to articulate because it's one of those scenes where I feel like it it makes sense to me but also it's I can't really explain it at all. So <laughs> and that that it could be the title of your twin peaks book because isn't that all of twin
0: peaks? It isn't about necessarily making factual sense. It's about you, the feeling that it it gives you. I think if you look at Firewalk with me, as its own entity and you ignore the missing pieces for a second. It wouldn't have felt right, in my opinion, to superimpose Laura Palmer's face over that scene in, in the convenience store. I mean, I just don't think it would have played right thematically, but in the missing pieces, because we are, because in some ways that's connecting Laura to everything. I think it does make sense there. I don't know, what do you think? I mean, would I'm-
1: when I see her face superimposed, because also after the Black Lodge, it cuts back to the convenience store being superimposed with the woods of Twin Peaks. I think of it as like that there's like these malevolent forces. It's like this is like the worst that the worst odds that, ha- that are stacked against her. Just kind of like she doesn't quite realize what it is she's quite dealing with yet. That's what my takeaway is every time I see it because I think the first time I saw the missing pieces, I just kind of just, just went with it just because there's just something about that convenience store scene just completely on its own where you're just trying to like think and feel your way through it. But the more I think about the odds being against Laura and like, it just kind of reaffirms like the bravery she has uh, when she takes the ring at the end.
0: Yeah. And I think that in the script, Bob is actually talking to her through that fan. Then I can't right now remember what the line is, but, but he is talking to her and that's what that footage is from. So that was all excised from the movie, of course, all of Bob speaking to her in that way, except I want to taste through your mouth. I think it's the one time they let that go through. And I don't know, I I kind of wish the voiceovers were in the missing pieces because I think they would have helped, but I have often wondered if Frank Silva's dialogue is gone like maybe they did bring him in to do it i don't know if they if lynch decided ahead of time that they were cutting it or they just couldn't find that audio
1: but it would have been interesting to have all of those in i thought the convenience store was like a good starting point because it kind of like deals like the cosmic aspect of what laura's dealing with the thing is that a lot of the stuff in the movie it just kind of seems like for her it's like it's her last seven days but how would she know so it's just kind of for her it's worse than you know what she had to deal with previously but it doesn't feel like this like massive thing that she has to like you know this destiny she has to basically fulfill the next scene that i do have is that uh it's the mike is the man where i know it's mostly about mike and bobby but i could think of like upon rewatching the missing pieces with cheryl lee's performance where when mike and bobby wanted to get a ride for lauren donna it's just they seem just so blatantly disinterested, mostly on Laura's end. But I think for her, like Bobby is just more just purely transactional at that point. Also, I think the other one that I had is that there's like weird, almost like catcalling vibes where it's just like uh like from Mike and Bobby as well. A little more so Mike. It just seems like they're just so disconnected for a variety of reasons, whether it's just where they're at with the relationship, the drug issues with um with Leo in particular. I do also think that the lingering shot with Laura and Donna as they walk down the street, it does, like, for me kind of imply that there's a true distinct friendship that Laura has. Maybe it's flawed on her end, but she does have just a distinct respect for Donna, even if it doesn't show through in some cases.
0: Well, I I mean, I think so, definitely. And even if you don't want to take that scene you got to think of where does she go when she sees her father walk out of the house? She goes to Donna. I mean, she could have went to Harold Smith if we want to believe that that's her trusting place or whatever, go to Norma, let's say, or there's a lot of places she could have gone, but she went to Donna. So I've actually never half doubted that love. I, th- I think You know, you could almost make the argument that's the only person that Laura truly did love was Donna.
1: This seems like it might be off topic, but also not really. I think of in season three when Goran Cole opens the door and it is that footage of Laura when she goes to see Donna. Do you think that there's anything about that friendship that would carry over to the Goran Cole scene, or is that just like a completely different can of worms for you?
0: Well, it's interesting because in. When issue 16, of the blue rose celebrates the five years of the return and 30 years of firewalk with me, and so I was trying to think what should the back cover be, and I ended up and I just happen to have one here, I ended up putting that together with the line, are you my best friend. Because this is the only connection. Well, that's not true. This is the major connection between The Return and firewalk With Me because the scenes with Philip Jeffries, they do play in The Return, but they aren't actually connected. That's almost like giving you feedback as a viewer to make sure that you're there. That is an actual new scene where Gordon Cole sees Laura. I've always felt that it was... The one true time, bust me if I'm wrong, (laughs) but I think it's the one true time when Laura reached out for help. In that moment when she saw her dad, she had just seen Bob. She isn't able to truly piece together the horror that she's been living with since she was a teenager, but she goes to Donna, she's reaching out for help. And in that moment, Gordon Cole is almost called to that while they're working on solving this case that to me is the connection it's the connection of help
1: I agree with that just in terms because I always kind of viewed that as like the distinct call for help she has where maybe it's like arguably like how uh, just because I always view Gordon Cole as like an avatar for Lynch in some capacity about how he feels about Laura but I do also think about just the connection of Cooper as well just in terms of like this is like the next closest connection uh, in some ways Again, that's another one where I, you know, I'd love to say that I have like these like unique answers for everything, but they're just stuff that I'm either trying to trying to get sort out through or trying to figure out. So I do, I do apologize for having a bit of an unceremonious answer for that, but.
0: No, I mean, that's what Twin Peaks is all about. I mean, I think one thing that was interesting that I noticed when I was doing the screen captures for that is they actually do mirror, they flip it. So the
1: doors work, which is kind of funny. So in editing, they had they had to they had to make it work. I remember the thing is that uh, that's something I always thought of on and off. I was like, wait, wasn't it reverse in the other in the other version? But uh, I never really like looked at it side by side. But I guess since we resolved everything with like the Donna relationship, I guess we could shift over to uh, Laura's relationship with Sarah because I think of the scene we see after that is uh, Sarah has like all the groceries and the cigarettes like right a stop out and just like basically like you know drop out of her mouth and uh laura grabs it and she's already holding it like she already like kind of knows how to smoke and she's in such like a prompt hurry and correct me if i'm wrong but was this the scene to show that laura was going to go to Harold's right after this like was it like she looked okay that's that's why i thought because it seemed like the urgency just seemed so like seemed to align perfectly with it
0: yeah she's going to Harold's to give him the diary and she's she's freaking out and wants to get there quickly to me what's You know, I'm sure we'll have the discussion of whether there should be missing pieces or not, or they should have been in or out. It's so fascinating how all of Grace's good scenes got excised from the movie. You know, this scene and then when she comes home, which is the next scene, they're kind of bookended scenes before and after because she lies about going to study with Bobby. And let's blame the parent on that. Who would study with Bobby Briggs? Come on. I mean... You're not going to go to Bobby Briggs to study, but um, I think Sarah. You really feel how much she loves Laura, which is why I know some people think maybe she was that evil creature in season three at that point or not. You said you did a Sarah episode with Joel Baco. Yep. Does Joel think Sarah's evil in Firewalk with Me?
1: I don't necessarily think she's evil i know that me and him like we didn't have active clashes but we also uh, there's certain parts of like the judy aspect where that really factors in because a lot right. of that goes back even as far as the final dossier in part eight but i think in terms of her like uh, i think we thought about more so after the death of leland that's where we both kind of generally agreed upon that that's where a lot of that was like starting to stir up in her and that's what really festered into what we see in season three But I think in terms of Fire Walk With Me, we don't really view her as like Judy's like an active presence. It's dormant at best and just completely unknowingly to Sarah. Right. That's how I feel, too. I mean, I think that it would be
0: very hard to take the scenes from Fire Walk With Me or The Missing Pieces and make any kind of argument that Sarah Palmer is evil. Now we could certainly make the argument that she's turning a blind eye to Laura's suffering as the entire town is doing that. But as far as the
1: Judy aspect, I, I don't see it at all in Firewalk with me. I guess to lead in with uh Firewalk with me and the missing pieces, I think of the secret diary where it's kind of surprising that despite the fact that obviously Laura's in the Palmer home like, you know, throughout like a lot of events of it is the surprisingly passive nature that uh, Sarah has. There's everything about Bob and Leland, but it seems like Leland has a more active presence in, uh, in Laura's life, if we're just looking at the lens of a day-to-day life. And Sarah's just kind of just there. So it seems like even Jennifer Lynch, she kind of had that groundwork of the passivity that Sarah had. And I feel like you can really see it with the grocery scene and the schoolbook scene, because the thing is that it seems like the way that Grace Brisky, perf- you know, her performance plays it, she does seem like she does truly care for Laura, but at the same time, she doesn't seem like someone that Laura can really reach out to. Because I think of that scene where when she finds out that Laura's school books were on her bed, which one, the the part where when Laura says, what were you doing in my bedroom? Like you can really feel the serious violation in Cheryl Lee's performance on that. But the thing is that there's that part where Sarah, she slams down on the piano. You see the cigarette actually, like flicker for a moment. And she's like, look, you can tell me anything. And you just get the sense like, you can't really tell her anything. Like, right. uh, it just, there, there's a reason why Laura can't really disclose much of anything with Sarah. There's that certain passivity, the way she kind of reacts to certain situations. And even though Sarah is doing her best, uh, at least, you know, if you if ever if you asked Sarah if she was a real person, I, I think that's sort of the big takeaway for her.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that that is the most important part of really taking on not the sci-fi part of Laura's struggle. If you just really look at incest in the home, you know, the father is going to have probably committed some sort of violent act to the mother, at least through, um, I don't know, like it's hard, it's such a sensitive topic, but you know what I mean? Like he's abusing the mother as well. He's not just going to abuse that daughter. I think in just really how Grace plays it almost all the way through. I mean, if you even look at her behavior at the Hayward dinner in episode eight, I don't know. She's not vocal with Leland, I think. I mean, he's definitely abusing her as well. And I think that the, I think Sarah knows all along.
1: This is actually a perfect segue for the next scene because it's the family dinner. Uh, There's that part where when Leland, he's teaching them Norwegian. Mm -hmm. And uh, Grace Zabruski said that of all the scenes from The Missing Pieces, she wishes made it in the movie. This was it. It's not because it was like a fun family moment. It's not trying to set the precedent that it is a happy family on a surface level. She views it as like there's a certain hysteria that Leland sends Sarah and Laura into. And I think of stuff like, you know, there's that part in, you know, because I think the scene's like two and a half, three minutes. And you think of how much it goes into to rehearse that. So there's that part, there's the unified what from Cheryl Lee and Grace Zabriskie, where it's almost like Leland kind of knew kind of like the right thing to say to them. And the way he's holding their hands and kind of like send them in a trance of sorts. It really does seem like that in like, there's this underbelly of like, how he can kind of control the situation, kind of leave things on his terms. Did you have a certain takeaway from like how Leland was in that scene and how it affected Laura?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's hard
1: to pick like if you're if you're forced
0: to pick like, you know, the scene that you're most upset that's not in the movie. And this would certainly be up there. It'd be be in the top one or two that you would really want in the film. And again, like you're saying, it's not because it lightens the mood. I mean, it is a funny scene. And when they're saying it and the way they laugh. And I really like how Cheryl and Grace do an extra laugh after the laugh, which happens a lot when you get giggly. But it is more about the power that he holds over them. When you compare it with the you didn't wash your hands scene, that's why I actually think it should be in the film, because if you took those two scenes, When you're abused by someone, they normally are going to use control both ways. And this is a control of, look, now we're going to have a happy meal because I'm in a good mood and here's this silly thing. So let's all laugh. Let's all be happy. Versed with, you didn't wash your hands. You sat down without washing your hands. And then he's pinching her cheek and, you know, he is going to control whatever mood she's in. And it really does show the power and how it spills over to Sarah. So... I think it's one of the most important scenes. That being said, I think they did, as you said, it's like a three minute and, you know, the scene that we see is is sort of just the master take. I'm sure they did coverage. You really couldn't shorten that scene. Like it was probably an easy scene to say, you know what, we're going to
1: make up like four minutes here. Let's, you know, let's have it go. This has come to back to how Leland can control Laura is that I've brought this up a few times is that the way Leland acts and the way that Laura and Sarah react to it, you get the feeling that he doesn't act like that too much, but there's also, it's not the first time this has happened. So there is sort of certain, like a mastery of control that I think that he has. Like whether it's Leland or Bob, like I know that's a debate that will never be resolved, but I think there's at least a dynamic of like what Laura and Sarah have to react to and like how they have to deal with it or how they kind of just go through their, their day-to-day lives because it does, you know, look in these two scenes together, You do get the sense of like why there's that almost like acceptability of like, oh, this person's controlling and weird, but they're not going to really press it because there's those quote unquote good moments to kind of embellish it.
0: Well, and when I interviewed Cheryl Lee, I asked her about that scene specifically because Ray Wise is such a nice guy and her and Cheryl, him and Cheryl have such a great relationship and I've been lucky enough to spend time with them and... You know you just look at them and you think how do you act that afraid of someone that you know and it was kind of funny because Cheryl sort of schooled me and said well it's called acting like you're I, I'm acting <laughs> it doesn't really matter and then you're like oh yeah that's right that's your whole job and that's what you do like it's hard for some of us to think of putting yourself in that situation because her, I mean, everything about her when he comes over to her, she's utterly petrified of him. And both their acting in that in that scene, I should say, all three of them is just incredible.
1: To kind of shift away from the Palmers, uh, this upcoming scene makes me think of the Secret Diary a little more so. But it's the trucker scene, where it's like Leo's friend, or it's like it seems like it's acquaintance of Leo at least, where it's uh, basically Laura's waiting. It's like seems like it's more of a prostitution thing for her to make money. But I think this scene is kind of emblematic of how Laura, how she's being exploited, but she also has ways to assert her power as well. Again, it's sort of like the in the secret diary where it shows like that descent with like drugs and sex where it's like she kind of knew, kind of figured her way out around it. By the time we get to Fire and the Missing Pieces, it's that weird balance, like I said, of like the being exploited, but also kind of knowing how to put things on her own terms. Did you have anything in mind for this scene in particular? I mean,
0: I think it's probably the best cut. I mean, it's probably the least important missing piece. I mean, we're certainly glad to see it. And if you've been out to Snoqualmie, like, you know, I've stood there. So it's kind of cool because that's actually right at the road that's by Deer Meadow Sheriff Station. It's that little gravel road that goes right by it. That's where they filmed it. So, I mean, that's kind of cool. But I feel like this point is made with better and so there's real there's no real need for that scene it's a good cut
1: that one I would agree I I will say though they did do a good job with the scene because like the, the trucker like he has that like every time I watch I forget how like extremely predatory his look is the way he's like just kind of leering at Laura but yeah I think there's certain scenes I look in the missing pieces like this reminds me of the secret diary or this feels like it'll be right home the original series and this kind of feels like it fits the bill for it's the right scene for Twin Peaks just not right for the movie Coming back to uh, Laura and Donna, it's the scene where after she finds out that it's uh, Leland like emerges from the house after she goes under the fan, she goes to Donna and they have this great conversation where it's like they're incredibly vulnerable where Donna's talking about how she's uptight. She wishes she was more like Laura. And then she brings her inside and then that's when Doc Hayward, he has his magic trick with uh, him and Eileen. You can kind of tell that they want to be as much of parents to Laura as much as they can be but they feel like there's something a little out of their control. The one thing I did want to ask you is that the quote-unquote prescription, do you think that was Doc Hayward or do you think that was Donna that had that piece of paper? Because when we see in the movie, we just see Laura's face. We don't see, we we hear, what the hell is this? But I'm not sure if it's something that Donna hands to him or if it's Doc Hayward who's kind of pulling another quote-unquote magic trick.
0: Um... Uh... I mean, I don't know how we would know, but I guess if I had to guess, I would say it's likely that Donna wrote, you know, Laura needs cheered up. So if I was going to teach a class about the direction of David Lynch, did you want to sign up for that class, by the way? Because I could I could. What do you think?
1: I would I would love to. Uh, And honestly, (laughs) you would be you'd have a good takeaway from it as well. Um, I just don't know if I really have the time or money for it. (laughs) Um, If I was going to teach a directing class
0: about David Lynch, I would use this scene and then the final scene of Fire Walk with me to discuss and compare. Because I think you can learn so much about who David Lynch is as a filmmaker. So here she says, you know, when you see the angel, you know, and you'll weep with joy because, you know, and all of that. And then, of course, at the end, you see the angel and they weep with joy. So I feel like it's so easy to say, well, oh my gosh, that scene should be in the movie because it explains the ending and David Lynch cut it because that's David Lynch. He doesn't care about setting up his ending. I mean, he knew that was going to be the ending and that's, that's, that's up the entire ending. So I love that he just cut it and doesn't care that, that it, there is an explanation. And to me, it means there are explanations for those things that maybe you don't understand and you can feel them. That's the important part.
1: I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of those scenes where I remember it's like the first couple times I watched The Missing Pieces. I kept thinking to myself, like, this scene's perfect. Like, I love this scene. But then the more I think about it, I was like, yeah, this seems like it's a little too obvious of foreshadowing. My biggest thing is that I just love Warren Frost is Doc Hayward. Right. And I think that a lot of it was leaning towards that. But the one thing I think is interesting is that uh when leland calls and doc hayward says laura it's for you it's your father you hear the wind pick up it's that ominous whooshing type of wind and it really sets the precedent for just this massive tone shift like everything that felt like right and like almost serene for a moment just completely goes away and then of course we have the scene of like laura saying i'm the muffin which uh i know for people uh you know for people who watch in 1992 and then 22 years later in 2014 where the I'm the muffin in the like in the pink room just has a completely different feel to it. Knowing the context of Laura and Donna's interaction, did you have any takeaways about the I'm the muffin part of like you know upon seeing that in the missing pieces?
0: I think uh, is how close are we to them getting to the pink room or um, I'm sorry. What's our next scene up? Do you you've been writing down there, right?
1: The next scene in the movie would be uh, the dinner table scene. So I think we have another day or two before we get to the pink room.
0: Because I wanted to talk about that, which is sort of leading to me of them cutting the "I am the muffin" thing. So I'm going to hold off till we get to the pink room. I'm going I'm going to pause. Let's move forward, and then I'll talk about them both.
1: Okay. So the next part is the the fan. Of course, this is the scene that like I think pe- most people had like a visceral reaction to. I think of like with Laura where she's wearing red when she happens to be under the fan. I mentioned earlier about the Black Lodge connection of like her face superimposed with the Black Lodge with Bob and the man from another place as they enter. And uh, I think of like the face change implication, but the thing I'm most curious about is the blue sweater because this is actually something that's mentioned by Sarah in the school book scene where she finds the blue sweater crumpled at the bottom of Laura's closet. But then she's wearing it this time. She's like having this meltdown of saying it's happening again. And I think of the, use, the deliberate use of color. Did you have any takeaways of like Laura wearing red or the significance of blue with, uh, with uh, Sarah?
0: So to me, it's not the color. I always connect that to Laura being upset about Donna wearing the coat in the pink room. And about sharing your things. And that to me is how I connect those two scenes that, you know, her mother's worried about her taking her clothes and then it goes on. Now, obviously, you can also turn that back to Donna wearing the sunglasses in season two of Twin Peaks. But there seems to be. I don't know, some connection between wearing your your stuff and whether if evil can travel or whatever you want to call through that. So that that's how I connect those two scenes. It's not so much the color as her mother doesn't want her wearing her things and she doesn't want Donna wearing her
1: things. I think for me, I when I think of the color blue in particular, I look at blue velvet as like, I guess the blueprint for Lynch's filmography. And I think I like maybe to a fault, like look at blue through the lens of that movie just about like the certain sadness and there's like this certain like ethereal aspect to it. So I think of just how like with uh, with Sarah, in Fire Walk With Me, all of her scenes except for the last one, she's wearing red and everything, and then she wears a little bit of green for that, that part with the school books and the groceries. But I'm thinking like with the color blue and like how Lynch is very deliberate with it. I think that was my biggest thing of just like what that what that would represent for her and just like why she would say it's happening again to coincide with the uh, giant slash fireman saying it later on season two.
0: Yeah. I mean, to me, what would be happening again is her losing her mind and probably having after effects of Leland drugging her. It could have more to do with it. That's how I've always read it.
1: That's actually a really good point. I actually never, I mean, I always kind of knew about the uh, like, obviously like he, it's very clear cut about how he drugs her. But i I, always, I guess i always thought about it in the moment or the day after i never thought of like the long term repercussions and collateral damage um that's actually a really great point that you brought up
0: i'm allowed to have one or two i i mean every once in a while i'll have a good point and then i'll go back to my normal just subpar
1: <laughs> no but uh, actually we're gonna finally get to the ping room because um, the next part i have is the car ride i know obviously that this is not just like a lost highway thing. But I think of like the way Tommy's driving super fast down a road and I'm going back like with David Lynch like in his life growing up but I'm pretty sure in Room to Dream, Lynch was talking about how when he was in Boise, Idaho just about how dark it would be just being like you know with no headlights there's no street lights or anything it's just the road and his father and just like this sense of mystery of like they have no idea where they're going My big thing with this scene is that we're coming right off the heels of like what, in my opinion, was the best Ed and Norma scene. You see this like beautiful romance of these two that can't be together. And then it cuts like pretty much a hard cut to like Laura with Buck and then uh, Donna with later on Tommy. And there's just like that sense of just like you have no idea where they're going. I mean, obviously we know it's the pink room, but just like the way the scene plays out. There's just that feeling of you just have no idea where this is really going to go. You just feel like almost like I'd say more of the intensity from Donna of like she's really out of her element and she's seen Laura in a, in a light that she really wishes she did at that point. Did you have anything in mind about like this whole dynamic with them?
0: This was probably the most interesting part for me in writing my book because I did not know that there was a controversy about where they went Because in Europe, and I never knew this before I worked on the book, in Europe, there were no subtitles. So they didn't hear them say, Welcome to Canada. And they thought they were in the back of the roadhouse, which I find absolutely hilarious because we are in the roadhouse a lot and rarely was everyone naked. I mean, I don't know, maybe something happened in the three days when they jumped three days after uh, episode 16 but in the series, there was no one naked at the roadhouse. So to me, it's very strange, but when you look at how you shape a film and when you take something that is four and a half hours long and you cut it down to two hours and 10 minutes, these are the mistakes you can make. And in, in reality, cutting that car scene or at the minimum them approaching the door that says the power and the glory and going in, That made a lot of people confused and they couldn't figure
1: out where they were. I never was confused. Did you always know they were somewhere else? I didn't think it was necessarily like the main room of the roadhouse. I thought maybe there's like a basement area. Cause I I think for me, when I think of the roadhouse, especially in Fire Walk with me, I think of Laura when she cries and then obviously she has her uh, contentious interaction with Buck. I'm thinking about how a public of environment she's in and how no one is really saying or doing anything. And moreover, the bookhouse boys are like basically like three yards away. And like somehow they're <laughs> they're all on top of everything else about like the evil in the woods, but they can't really keep their eye out on like the homecoming queen, just like in dire straits and in a clearly unethical situation to put in the lightest. So it, it wasn't crazy to me to think that there'd be a basement area that like Jacques and like the Renault's would have as like a front. Like, you know, the roadhouse would be the friendly environment, but then there'd be this back area of like where the degeneracy would occur. Because you go down there and there's really not that many people. So I really thought maybe it was like people friends of like Renault or Leo Johnson, where it's just like a place that they can congregate hidden in plain sight. But I mean, I'm not trying to beat this point to death. But also, wouldn't Cooper
0: be the worst investigator ever if he didn't find a hidden room in the, in the basement of the roadhouse? I mean, he'd possibly be the absolute worst. And if you want to get more so, wouldn't Harry and Hank have gone there when they were teenagers if they were there do you see how nerdy you can get when you watch Twin Peaks like now I'm talking about what Harry and Hank would do as teenagers how about this guy get a life
1: well <laughs> hey, to be fair yeah Hank would probably be like the one who would definitely go to it yeah Hank would have known yeah he wouldn't really worry about one-eyed jacks with uh Ernie he'd probably just be like uh oh, head of the roadhouse be back at like 2 a.m., I don't
0: know. So, I just think it's really interesting. It's an interesting cut because on one hand, you can say, oh, I wish the Doc Hayward scene was there. And then, you know, obviously we're not talking about it because we're only talking about Laura, but you had mentioned the Big Ed and Norma scene, which is to me, the best missing piece. I love that scene. But you, again, couldn't put that in the movie because they're not even starring in the movie, really. Like, if you would just not have that scene. But when you cut a movie down, you got to think about what you're taking out and can a viewer follow it? Not foreshadow it, but follow.
1: And obviously, viewers struggled with that movement from scene to scene. I guess the other one, uh, and this is before they really go into the pink room, I see the sign for Cooper Tires like right outside of that bar. And I think of just like how wild it is. Like, I'm not sure if it just, it just legitimately happened to be like Cooper Tires was right outside of this like filming location, or and i know this is a little bit needlessly elaborate or if like lynch basically like like i don't know paid an extra amount of change like to make sure that sign was up to kind of like foreshadow or allude to something did you have any takeaways about the cooper tire sign in particular
0: no um if i had to guess i would say it's just there but i've that's one of the few locations i've not been to I've, i've never been to that um i'm not even sure where that was filmed
1: same here i of all the locations i've come across i have genuinely no idea like even if it's still a thing at this point but i guess the last thing i could say about like the pink room uh, at least what we see in the missing pieces is um the bartender the way he says hey laura it definitely implies that she comes here on a regular basis again i guess that's i I guess it's just good to point out that of all the stuff that she's doing in her life i presume this is a after one-eyed jacks type of situation where this is where she goes to make extra money Do you have any takeaways of like how often Laura visits the pink room or anything to build off that scene?
0: I mean, I would say it is highly implied that she's there all the time. I mean, Mm -hmm. the fact that she runs into Ronette and she's very comfortable there and they knew where to meet up and stuff with shock. So yeah, I
1: would say she's there all the time. We're going to kind of dig into like the original scripts for a moment. But uh, I did mention this when I was on Twin Peaks Unwrapped is that The next scene in the missing pieces is when Leland comes down the stairs like, don't forget, it's Johnny Horn's birthday. And uh, my biggest takeaway is that obviously with this scene in and of itself, it's pretty clear why they just removed it. But at the same time, it really reaffirms the idea of how important the whole Johnny Horn's birthday scene was in the script to Lynch. When I think of that scene in the script, I think of how you could only do that scene if Audrey was in it. Like, uh, in the script, it's just, like, Johnny Horn, it's uh, Ben Horn, Sylvia, Jerry, Leland, and later Laura. And uh, I feel like you needed Audrey to, to contrast with Laura in some capacity. Before I go too much further into it, did you have any thoughts about Johnny Horn's birthday either the scene or what we saw in the scripts?
0: Well, I'm so thankful it's not in the movie and I'm so thankful it was never filmed because I don't want to live in a world where I have to see Laura Palmer kiss Ben Horn. I just, it would have been a, it have been too much for me. Like I, I, I just don't need that. I mean, we know it happened and It's kind of interesting how much Ben Horn gets a pass, isn't it? Because he really is just as horrible as Leland. And I don't think people look at that. But I feel like a scene like that would have really shined the light on something that we don't want to see. So I'm glad it it didn't happen. It's a good cut. Also, we don't
1: necessarily need that story I don't think and we'll get to the upcoming scene but i think the reason why i made sure i wrote this one down is that in the dr jacoby call later on in the missing pieces she talks about how she promised johnny to be there for his birthday so it strongly implies that if we're going with the missing pieces that scene still did occur but as for ben horn i think for me i think of like it must have been early on in the secret diary or it's like about like uh, laura being on his lap i was like eh. You know, whether whether this was like a fatherly thing at the time or, it's like, or, or if it was a predatory thing at that point, it still just reaffirms the idea just how creepy it is that he would sleep with Laura later on in life. So for me, like, uh, I feel like this scene, had it been in the movie or even the missing pieces, it just would have been a nail in the coffin for me. But I yeah. I, I do understand, like, with Richard Beamer, I think that, of course, this is a total conjecture, but I think after him playing, like, a, a more of a good Ben Horn later in season two... It just kind of it just made it seem a little more sour to return to like a just a complete scumbag, and also it's in an R-rated movie, so they're going to be a little more unabashed about it.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm just really glad it didn't happen. Now, as far as her mentioning in the Jacoby scene. I'm sure script wise it does happen. You know, I mean Johnny's birthday did happen. I feel like they even mentioned in the pilot Laura coming up to see Johnny. So it's not like all those things don't occur, even if we don't see them in the missing pieces. But I'm just so happy we don't have to see them. I don't want to see them.
1: <laughs> and this will be the last thing I mentioned, but I really do wonder what been like if Sherilyn Fenn, because I know for her, she ended up getting the role of a mice and man and it happened to be right before Firewalk with me. But she said that Lynch actually, it was the first time he ever yelled at her for being unable to be in it. So I really do think that Lynch had a certain fixation on the scene. And like, I think he just wanted the, like something to permeate throughout all of Fire Walk with Me*. Yeah,
0: I mean, I don't think there, you could make a justification story-wise for why Audrey Horn would be in there. I mean, the idea was supposed to be that Audrey and Laura really were not friends. Mm-hmm. Although Audrey says I knew it better than she thinks. But um, I'm, I'm glad and Fenn isn't in it, even though I love and Fenn with all my heart, and especially in 1992,
1: I was so in love with her. But it, it doesn't work for the story. For me, I generally agreed with that sentiment, but I think it's really, and forgive me for not knowing who it was, but there are two women in Laura's Ghost who talked about the dynamic of Audrey and Laura and about how if there's one person who could understand to some degree how Laura felt, it would have been Audrey. So I'm kind of wondering if that was like a I And mean, I'm just kind of going off of that aspect of like, would that have been featured in Firewalk I me mean, had she been there about like how they're kind of connected and disconnected at the same time? Yeah. I mean, you
0: know, if I was asked, how would I put Cheryl and Fenn in Firewalk with me? I would want sherilyn fenn and ben horn i'm sorry i'm using their real names and not audrey and ben to meet up with leland and laura and leland and ben have all the dialogue and audrey and laura don't say one word like if they bumped into each other at the double r let's say and he says well those norwegians are coming you got the contracts i do and the two of them just never say one word now that would have been sweet as hell, but there's no way Cheryl and Fenn would have come back to have no lines in Firewalk with me. But if you just want to take it from a story perspective, that's how Laura and Audrey knew each other.
1: That's actually a good point because in the pilot, one of the, I mean, it's probably a second or third call, but Sarah does, when she calls Leland, she does ask like, oh, she's not with you. So it would imply that she has been to the Great Northern a couple times and Probably would have had interactions pretty much exactly like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, they just didn't like
1: each other. They wouldn't have talked. Yes, they they
0: both had daddy issues from different reasons, but I don't know. That that's I've never thought of that before, but but it's really weird. But Bob Angles and David Lynch, they didn't consult me at all when they were writing the Firewalk with me script. Not even a little bit. Huh. Go figure.
1: The next scene that I have is um, Bobby at his locker. It's the after the events after he kills Deputy Cliff for baby laxatives. Obviously, Bobby doesn't know it's baby laxatives at the time. I guess before I get into my thoughts, did you have any takeaway from this scene in particular?
0: particular? Um, you know, it's weird because I often wonder, should it be in? Because does it sort of explain where that goes as far as the pilot goes? I, I don't know. I, I, can't, I have no feelings for the scene, I would say.
1: This is actually one of those scenes where, like I said about the trucker scene, where I felt very at home had it been in the secret diary. This scene, I know, of course, put aside the very obvious that Laura's dead by the time the pilot comes around, but there's something about the tone of this scene that feels very right at home with, like, the original series. Theoretically, if, like, I don't know, if it was, like, Mike and Bobby and they had, like, some similar interaction like this, it would feel perfectly right at home at the first season. My big takeaway is that I think of, like, how just, like, extremely high Laura still is at this point, where it's like she's still on that high from, I think it's like midnight at the, at the events of when uh, Cliff is shot. And that's presumably like eight in the morning. So it really does show that Bobby, like, you know, he was finding like the like the best of the best drugs for her to get away from like everything pertaining to Bob. My thing with uh, Cheryl Lee's performance is the intensity in her eyes. Like there's something about like the way Dana Ashbrook, where he like uh, kind of holds both her hands down saying, I killed a guy. Where there's that contrast of like her taking everything as a joke and then just having that like, intensity, of, like I think it's finally sinking in for her. Right. Um, I think that's at least a pretty good lead-in for for the next Bobby scene, the missing pieces. But before that, um, I think it's good to talk about the Jacoby scene because this is one of those scenes where if the secret diary didn't re- didn't show just how scummy Jacoby could be, this scene, the missing pieces, like really hammers it home. It's like you're saying about Ben Horn, where you're glad that scene didn't make it in. This scene, however, even if it's just missing pieces, did make it in. And it just makes you think, just like, ugh, like Oh yeah, it is
0: it is so creepy and disgusting and makes you really see just the horror of what Laura was going through, and it's you know from the Jacoby character. If you think of how strange he is in the pilot, this kind of matches the pilot Jacoby, and then they sort of make him a little more sympathetic as the series goes on. But he also was just
1: an absolute creep. Me and John Bernardi, we had an whole episode talking about how like how complex he is when you go through the span of like all three seasons. But this scene just on its own. It really just says like all the worst things about him because you hear in Cheryl Lee's performance, because obviously this is when she finds out who Bob really is and you can just hear it in every syllable of Cheryl Lee's performance. And then Jacoby, not only is he so lust filled over Laura that he came and notice the most obvious problems. Cause in the show, he talks about how she was like an impenetrable force that he, he felt to be an abject failure to not break through. But this is like the most clear cut scene of like anyone could just see something was wrong with her. And for someone with uh, like of his position, that's like, that just makes it extra egregious. And I do think of that scene where he says, where he asks like, send, send me a kiss. And then she just hangs up and it cuts back to him where it's like, you kind of see his face like, man, even for me, that was really sad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't yeah. know if you got a takeaway from Russ Tamlin's performance at the end. I mean, it's
0: a very brave performance for Russ. And when you think about how Richard Beamer looked at that script and said, I'm not doing that. It's cool that Russ was willing to, you know, that he he was gonna play that bad guy. Uh, again, I'm glad it's cut because it's sure as hell as creepy as hell.
1: For me, I feel like where we're at in the movie, uh, if we're just talking about the theatrical cut, I feel like having Jacobian at a time like that, it would have felt a little, I don't wanna say shoehorned, but it just feels like it will have disrupted the flow because I think of like once she, she finds out who Bob really is, a lot of that should be like the primary focus and obviously this isn't a fan service type scene but it just kind of feels like it would have deviated a little too much like it works on its own it's well in character of jacoby and laura but i would say that all in all it works better as like the missing pieces than if it did make it in the movie to kind of go off of of cheryl lee's just distraught performance the i hate asparagus scene when you hear that in the in the diary entry in the pilot you kind of think like oh it's it's just some innocuous diary entry but you really feel the double meaning of it the way she says it in this scene. Did you have any takeaways of her interaction with Sarah in this?
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like the way she delivers the line and really the way she plays that whole day, it's like she's on a conveyor belt. I mean, she is so going through the motions. She's totally broken. There's really nothing left of of her. And it does show you how there can just be a line on the page and then how an actress of Cheryl Lee's ability can bring that line to mean so much more.
1: The next part I could say about this scene is that uh, Sarah, it kind of, it's a good mirror of like her at the dinner table scene at, or for breakfast that morning and what she's like at night because you just get the sense of like the body language of Leland in the morning and then uh, uh Laura e- that morning and that evening that there's something very clearly wrong. And you kind of get the sense that maybe I mean you see it in the movie, but I feel like in this scene it's almost like undeniable the way Grace plays that scene because it's like there's something going on. This isn't just like a bad day at school. There's something like cataclysmic going on and it seems like Sarah's taken like a deliberate blind eye at this point. So I wasn't sure if you had anything to build off of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I just think it again is how that character is set up and in another actress's hands I think that it could be tipped, but I feel like Grace just plays her character and you know, if you if you look at her in Wild at Heart, She's such a villain and she's not judging that character. She's totally playing it. And in the same way, she does the same thing with Sarah, where it it, it, like you say, it's obvious. I mean, Laura is completely broken, but her mom is not going to see it. She doesn't want to think that this is in her home and she's going to ignore it. All the way until when she does that scream in the pilot. When when it when That's the first time she truly lets herself confront what's been going on in her house. But I, I think she knows.
1: So we have a segue where it's like it goes from like uh, she asked to go to Bobby's that night and she's like uh, be back home at nine. But the thing is that before we really get in the basement scene, I feel like it's now as good time as I can bring up how In Your Laura Disappeared where you kind of broke the idea that this is not actually a basement, it's actually some guy's garage. And (laughs) it's one of those things where I can still accept that it's a basement, but once you kind of pick up that it's a garage, there's certain parts of it that are hard to unsee. Like, did you have that feeling of (laughs) when you revisit the missing pieces? Of course.
0: Well, so this is the thing that's so weird about how things work for me. Um, we had a guy come to do a home insurance inspection, and he saw my Firewalk with Me poster that always hangs above my computer. And then he's like, Hey, part of that movie was filmed at my aunt's house. And I'm like, What? And he's like, yeah, there's a scene that's supposed to be in a basement. It's actually my aunt's garage. And I have everything captured on my computer. And I'm like, well, is it this scene? And I forget what scene I went to the first time. There's only two scenes in a couch. It's funny now I can't think of what that other scene was. And he was like, no, it's not that. There's a kayak in the back. And then I was like, well, then it's gotta be this one. And sure enough, he's like, yeah, that's my kayak. You know, there's a big raft up there. And yeah, that's just the garage. They just put a couch there and they filmed that scene in a garage. It's not a basement at all. Isn't that crazy? Like, how would we ever find that out?
1: That never would have crossed my mind until I read this book. Again, it works as a basement, but I think there's just a way when, when Laura comes through the door, you're just like, okay, that's like, I, I, I could just tell that's a garage, like just from that part alone. Like everything else looks fine, but something about the door that we barely see just makes you think like, yeah... This, books, this feels... The
0: stuff that's in there as well, like, of course it's a garage, but, and I think the book was done. I think I added, like, I was, you know, in the editing thing and I'm like, I got to put that in like, Hey, we got another thing going in there. So yeah,
1: kind of crazy. But I guess to actually dive into the actual scene, the way that Laura and Bobby talk, and uh, you can pick this up in the movie, but, uh, but because the scenes like longer in the missing pieces. Where you get a sense of like just the dynamic of the relationship where Bobby at this point has kind of just accepted that this is not a real relationship. That I guess they're all but broken up really at this point. Did you have any big takeaways? Because I remember in your Laura Disappeared, you talk about how much you love the scene so much more in The Missing Pieces than we got in the movie.
0: Yeah. And it's actually the fact that it's a master shot in the missing pieces. So there's no cutting, you know, when you look at it and I actually had to go back and say, well, wait a minute. What's different about these two scenes? And they're really close up on Laura and they're close up on Bobby. But when the scene just plays all the way from him pulling her over the couch to the end of it you just see this whole relationship and I think it's Dane Ashbrook's best work. I mean, all the emotions he's going through now, I don't know. It's sort of interesting because if you really want to care that Shelly and Bobby aren't together in the return, then how do you feel about the fact that is he really getting his heart broken by Laura? Because isn't he supposed to be in love with Shelly at this point? Aren't Shelly and Bobby supposed to be the greatest couple ever and yet he's having this time with Laura. So I think that kind of sort of takes away if we really care that Bobby or yeah, Bobby and Shelley aren't together in the return. But I just think the emotional level is incredible as the way it plays. That being said, at this point, the movie is on the down of the roller coaster. And it would have slowed the film down. We don't need all of that. Even though it's spectacular, we don't need it. It's better to cut it and keep going.
1: So, one thing I'll say about Dana Ashbrook's performance by before we go back to Laura is that I think what really works for this scene and it's completely unintentional is that apparently he had a bad flight from Texas going into the SeaTac airport and he arrived on set right at that scene. And uh, I'm thinking of, like, what it's like to travel to Washington when you're in a different time zone, and when it's a bad flight, and then you have to, like, go in your car to just the set immediately. I mean, obviously, yeah, like, Dan Ashbrook's a great actor, and you see a lot of great parts, and definitely season three in particular, but I think he was just so worn out and tired that I think it really carried over in the performance, and it worked in, like, the best way possible. <laughs> yeah, I, I like it. But it, it is a really good scene. To uh, go back to Laura, the one thing I've always thought about, and it really goes into further with this and another scene from The Missing Pieces, the way she says that she's going home. There's just like a mm-hmm. way she said in such a distinct manner, where I guess I'll go with what I think of the scene independently before I go into uh, subsequent like themes. I think of how like for her, I've slowly become convinced that for her, she just wanted to end her life at this point and like the she was because you, you see the way she's dressed up she's clearly going to go see jacques and leo i honestly think that she's going to try to end her life by overdosing at the cabin because it just feels like she has no one else to reach out to at that point and of course I, I mean that's a really dark interpretation but i also think of the way they talk about home i think of uh later in the missing pieces when it's cooper and the man from another place it's right after the events of season two Where uh, the man from another place says there's nowhere to go but home. And he starts cackling with laughter. Uh, We're really going far off. And I know this could be a whole thing of itself. But the way Cooper in Part 17 says we're going home when he tries to rescue Laura. So there's something distinct about home. And how Laura just kind of, I think, subconsciously knows Did you have any takeaways about the way she said it?
0: I do think, yeah, I mean, that always breaks me when she says I'm going home. And for some reason, I love the word home, which is weird because I haven't always felt like I've had a home. I've I've been a nomad for a big portion of my life. And maybe that's why I like home. Maybe that's why I don't. But there's something that word can get me. But I actually... I think it is connected to what you're saying when he says there's no place to go but home, but I I think that's a Wizard of Oz reference. I'm sure Lynch is doing his Wizard of Oz thing because there's no place like home when the little man is saying that, not so much when Laura's saying it, but that's how I read that scene.
1: Okay. The next part is that uh, when Laura, when she's about to go and she's waiting for James and Leland, he just slowly creeps around the corner in the car and he gets out. And the thing is that this scene... Ray Wise is so intimidating and horrifying <laughs> that I legitimately if I remember for a long time I thought why wasn't this in the movie this would have stopped me dead in my tracks but Ray Wise is so good in it you forget about all the events people talk about in the pilot of like James went to go see her that night Bobby saw her at some point she was like out doing something else and you legitimately forget all these events that people talk about throughout the first season because Ray Wise is just like The way like he just stops and he'll gaze. In my mind, he clearly sees Laura. And uh, you just forget because he's so just terrifying in that moment.
0: Oh, yeah, he's so he's very, very scary in that scene. And when I've been at places with Ray, there are a lot of people who are afraid of him. And they'll say, but he's not that guy at all. He's such a sweet, very nice person. Uh, He just can
1: make that face that scares the hell out of you. I think of just like how much it adds that scene is like you hear james's motorcycle in the background it's come back to what we we're seeing before about leland at the dinner table saying well both scenes is that there's a certain way that he asserts control and he just kind of knows and again i know there's the whole debate of like bob versus leland but still it's uh it still comes down to like what laura's big takeaway is and like how she feels and like how like it's everything's on his terms and this scene if if I can forget like critical plot points, like the moment I watch a scene from season one, that really says something about the performance Ray Wise has and the terror that Cheryl Lee conveys.
0: Heck yeah. I agree.
1: The last scene really pertaining to the missing pieces is the scene with Margaret. She can hear the screams, like mostly uh, it's primarily the scene where Laura she sees Leland in Jacques' cabin. I can honestly say if there's one scene I think should have been in the missing pieces in Firewalk Me this actually should have been it because-
0: Absolutely, it's uh, absolutely.
1: And of course, like uh, Margaret has this incredible scene outside the roadhouse, but I feel like this would have been like a perfect full circle because I think of how with Margaret, where I view her as like, she knows like the objective truth across like all of the Twin Peaks mythos. And I think unlike Cooper, she understands that this has to go through. I wasn't sure if you had any big takeaways on like Margaret and like how she handled herself in this scene. Well,
0: here, I'll say something that can make all your listeners angry. Lynch made a mistake. How about that? There's a sentence no one says. That that should have been in. It wouldn't have made the movie any longer. You could have just put that up at any time during the train car. You know, it wouldn't elongated the movie one second longer because you could put it up and have her look and it would have meant everything and so either they didn't find that footage till now and it just got overlooked or they just made a bad mistake but there is really no excuse for that not being in because also with her being in the movie once you would connect to it i agree if i could pick any difference in firewalk with me it would be putting that in because it matters so much
1: I'm no Mary Sweeney or Dwayne Dunham, but I feel like if we if they were to put this in, it would have been perfect of like after we see Leland just like uh forcing Laura and Ron out to the train car, but before we get to that exterior shot. It just feels like it's like such like a missed opportunity.
0: And that's why I think it had to be a mistake. I think they, you know, sometimes when you're editing, you put this over here, like a lot of times I'll be doing something and I know they didn't do it on the computer back then, but you just move something over to the side that you're going to get to. And I have a feeling it just got lost because there literally is no reason to not have that, especially because she'd already been in the movie. And like that connects it, it and it would have made the other scene better. But yeah, it's mind boggling that it's not in the movie.
1: This can kind of just tie down just how we feel about the missing piece in Fire Walk with Me. It's really just when she's right outside of uh, Blue Pine Lodge, right by the log, just to kind of lead seamlessly in the events of the pilot. Since we're pretty much uh, done in terms of the missing pieces and Firewalk with me, did you have any final takeaways on like either one of like how how we view Laura in either of these, or was there anything else you wanted to add? Um, I mean,
0: I don't know that you learn more about Laura through those missing pieces. I think. You get so much of who Laura is through Firewalk with me. I would, I don't know. I feel strange about fan cuts. I suggest people not doing them because I think you have to let David Lynch have final cut, even though I just said the log lady. That one doesn't count though. I don't know. I I don't think it changes anything about Laura, the missing pieces. I think it's the same. You just, it peels back another layer of her. That's what I would say.
1: I mean, I'm sure we've all met people where they like the missing pieces more than Firewalk With Me. And there's always that part where I always wondered why, because, um, I mean, obviously I love the missing pieces. I think they're just, I got more visceral reaction from Fire Walk With Me. But I think the the day-to-day life, you kind of get that more so from the missing pieces. Like, for example, like uh, with Mark Frost, where whenever someone asks him about Fire Walk With Me, he always shifts to the missing pieces. And I think a lot of those day-to-day interactions, and maybe for him... It was probably stuff like, you know, like uh, Betty and Garland Briggs, or it's Ed and Norma, or, you know, how Sarah coexists like, with the Palmer home in general. For me, I think it's just, like, there's that certain flow that we see in The Missing Pieces about how she interacts with Sarah in particular, and we kind of get more of, like, how Leland can control her in certain ways. And also just, like, a a certain vulnerability that uh, Donna and Bobby can share with her as well, where, you know, in the movie, uh, you know, it's like, it's good that they focus explicitly on Laura in most cases, but I do think it's nice that we have this, like, supplementary aspect to uh, go through about, like, how, how her life was outside of, like, the stress that she felt upon finding the torn pages in her diary.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that it's interesting. I've never actually heard Mark Frost talk about the missing pieces. So that's interesting that you have. I mean, I remember about 15 years ago or some time ago before I'd written anything, I reached out to Mark Frost to try to interview him and ask him questions about Firewalk with me, and he declined. So I've never really heard him say much about it, but...
1: It was mostly when he did conversations with Mark Frost, and then he did a... It was right before COVID, pretty much actually early days of COVID, when he did like a... I, I think I a, got a Q&A for the book where David Bushman was there. So <laughs> that's
0: funny because I think I led that Q&A. So maybe I, you'd think I'd remember them. But, I you know, it was like two days before COVID started. And I was just thinking, I wonder if I'm going to kill Mark Frost. Can I get past this if I'm, if I'm the guy that kills Mark Frost? And luckily I didn't.
1: So I mean, that's an unexpected way to end of the episode about the missing pieces. But uh, <laughs> since we <we're> wind <lying> down... <laughs> Um, I know you shared a lot everything about Blue Rose and Your Lord Disappeared and upcoming projects, but was there anything else you wanted to plug uh, now that we're reaching the end?
0: Um, no, I mean, I hope everyone got the newest Blue Rose, which is about Lost Highway, and then... Um, my next book is On Lost Highway, that has like the full interviews with Patricia Arquette and Balthazar Getty and Natasha Gregson. And Bill Pullman has said yes, but they've been putting me off for so long that I'm starting to wonder, but we're going to try. And then FMP also has a new Twin Peaks season three book coming out called Black Coffee Lightning by Greg Olson, who wrote a very famous book about David Lynch in the early 2000s uh, called Beautiful Dark. And he's like a lifelong Lynch scholar and it's his take on the return. So we're really excited about that. That comes out next October. We just keep uh, working away, getting out those Twin Peaks and David Lynch books for everyone.
1: But, yeah, no, I want to thank you for coming on. Um, I, I knew I wanted to cap off the year with uh, the missing pieces to uh, add to my Laura Palmer in her last seven days episode. So, this is like a huge deal to be able to do.
0: Well, I appreciate you asking. And everyone can follow me at Blue Rose Mag 1 on Twitter and go to bluerosemag.com uh, to pick up our books and magazines. Mm-hmm. All right, well, thank you, so at the end of the day. Yeah, you too. It was fun. Together, forever.